in suffering, you can complain, say God's not good, or you can say no, God is in control of everything in a very fallen world, and I'm going to use what he has given me to advance his kingdom, and especially use his suffering to help somebody else who's going through that very suffering. Did you know that your story has power? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Today, David shares about the power that our personal story with Jesus has in advancing the kingdom of heaven. People can debate theology, but they can't debate what has happened to you. Here's David in part two of a message he calls, Why is there human suffering? We're going to use 2 Corinthians 1.4 for the purposes of going and building a strong church that right now has given away millions of dollars locally and globally for the advancement of the kingdom of God. You got a choice, folks. In suffering, you can complain, say God's not good, or you can say no, God is in control of everything in a very fallen world, and I'm going to use what he has given me to advance his kingdom and especially use his suffering to help somebody else who's going through that very suffering. That's what Jesus was trying to say here as he claimed once again that as he is the light of the world and he is in the world, he teaches us these truths. In fact, that's what verse 5 is saying. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Sorry, but this is a little bit gross for those of you who see spittle as maybe a little bit offensive, but this is what happened. This is what Jesus did in order to heal this blind guy's eyes. Then he, Jesus, anointed, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, anointed. Folks, that, that's the term that happens when somebody anoints the king to be king over a nation. Uh, that's the term that's used to have a person set aside for a holy calling of ministry in some way. Jesus spits on the ground, and he takes his spit and forms it into mud balls, if you will. And I think the reason he did this partly was because in Genesis 2-7, remember, God created all of humanity from the dust of the ground. The creative powers of God are being manifested here as Jesus forms two balls of mud in his hands, and then he places them on the eyes of the blind man. Now, again, there was some people in that day who thought there was medicinal purposes in spit. So, so there's some of that going on here, but also even us today, if we burn our finger, what's one of the first things we do? We, we stick it in our mouths. There's something unique about saliva that does give some relief when we're going through some pain. But Jesus uses this as a moment to put these mud packs on the blind man's eyes that he made from his own spit. By the way, Jesus never does things the way we think he should do them. God's ways are not our ways. And just when you think you figured out the way God's going to do something, he's going to do it differently. Like, why in the world would God give a baby to a 90-year-old woman named Sarah? Why in the world would God take Elijah the prophet up into heaven in a fiery chariot? Why would he speak his prophetic words through a donkey or through a burning bush to Moses? Uh, Why in the world would God choose a young, maybe 13-year-old virgin girl to carry the Lord God of the universe in her womb through a supernatural conception. Why, why, why would he do that? Because God does things differently 
than how we would do them. And here's yet another occasion. I mean, Jesus could have just spoken and said, eyes open, and they would have opened. But he's doing this, I think, to teach a broader lesson, especially to this man, to learn what faith is really like. So he put the mud in the man's eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, here's something you need to realize. When the man got up, he still couldn't see. When he walked toward the pool of Siloam, he went down some steps to that pool, he couldn't see. He most likely had some people who came around him to help him get to the pool. We're going to see in a few verses that he was a beggar. That not only couldn't he see since birth, but he begged every day for his existence. He was a man who was an outcast, and now he had to probably ask people to help him get to this pool. But he did exactly what Jesus said. He got up, went to Siloam, washed, and he came back seeing. Now remember, he had only heard the voice of Jesus. He'd never seen his face. But he came back seeing, which is just an extraordinary understanding of what's going on right now. Look at verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. What's going on here? His countenance had changed so much that when he came back, people had seen him every day sitting down, begging for coinage just to be able to buy food. They didn't even recognize him. Folks, that's what's supposed to happen when Jesus does a miracle in your life. When he touches you deeply and powerfully, your life has changed. Some people might not even recognize you. Who is this guy? His life is not like the one I knew him to have. He said, I I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus. Stop there. That's the first understanding this guy had of Jesus. He just called him the man. There's going to be a progression here we're going to see that's very important. But initially, he says just the man. The man called Jesus. All he knew was his name. Again, he'd never seen his face. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So he simply tells the testimony of what happened. This is the first time he does so. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, I do not know. So what did they do next? They brought him to the Pharisees. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Now, in that day, whenever there was a miracle, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had to validate the miracle to prove that it had actually happened. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, that's important, remember, because in John 5, we saw this whole confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees begin as Jesus healed a man who had not been able to walk for 38 years, and he did it on the Sabbath. In fact, if you look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the number of miracles Jesus did on the Sabbath, that would be seven. Jesus on seven different occasions, did seven different miracles on the Sabbath. And it's almost like, folks, he was trying to provoke a fight with the Pharisees because he hated their traditions. In fact, when he made the mud, um, the law that was broken, according to the Pharisees, was working on the Sabbath. And what they had in their particular repertoire was what's called the Mishnah. 
the Mishnah were rules trying to interpret the Ten Commandments in specificity. One of those was you can't knead, K-N-E-A-D, knead bread, you know, make it into a loaf of bread on the Sabbath. And so Jesus had kneaded these little balls of mud, and that was thus breaking the law of the Sabbath. Also, you couldn't walk any kind of distance on the Sabbath. That was considered work. So Jesus commanded this guy to walk down to the pool of Siloam. Jesus had broken a couple of Mishnah Sabbath laws, and the Pharisees were enraged that he once again would do this Sabbath kind of healing. Uh, Jesus always seemed to heal on the Sabbath again to provoke the Pharisees into some kind of confrontation and fight. Uh, so the Pharisees in verse 15 again ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. He told his story a second time to them. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. He had broken two of the Mishnah interpretations of the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? If he's a sinner breaking the law of the Sabbath, how in the world could he give sight to a man born blind. That's something that only God can do. That's a good thing. That's not sin. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So notice, to the neighbors, he first of all says he, he's a man. So as he's beginning to cogitate all this that's happened to him, then with the Pharisees, he concludes, secondly, well, he's more than a man. Now, the second step of his faith journey is that Jesus is a prophet. Uh, start with verse 18 verse tw through verse 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind. Again, they're trying to validate all that had been said in order to think this miracle really was from God. Was he really born blind? And here's their answer. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Uh, parentheses, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees are pressing down on them to deny that he really was a blind man since birth, that they were trying to explain away what Jesus had done as sin. The parents are feeling the pressure because here's the intimidation factor from the Pharisees. They were basically saying, if you don't deny this happened, we're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue. Now, in that day, if people did some kind of sin, they could be excommunicated out of the synagogue for 30 days. Then if they repented, they could be welcomed back. If they didn't repent, it'd be another 30 days of excommunication. And then if they still didn't repent, they would be forever banned from the synagogue. Now, folks, isolation is so problematic. We've learned that during the COVID crisis, haven't we? And the greatest threat to someone is to be isolated from their community. These parents were fearful that they would not have any community, 
They couldn't go to the synagogue to worship. They couldn't spend any time with their friends. They would be considered sinful, outcasts. That's what intimidated them. That's why they were so afraid. We know in the prison system, for example, that isolation is one of the worst punishments, if not the worst one, you can do to a prisoner. So that's the intimidation factor going on here. Their response is, you go ask him. He's of age, so he must have been an adult, blind since birth, and they say, go ask him, he is of age. Then we move into the real heart of the story, verses 24 through 34. So the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, say he's a sinner that glorifies God. Tell us the truth. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Dear friends, verse 25, in my opinion, is the key verse of the whole section of Scripture. As we're seeing him move from calling Jesus the man to a prophet, he's getting pressed by the Pharisees to deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is from God. And the guy finally says, look, all I know is I was once blind, but now I can see. Every follower of Jesus needs a story. This guy has told his twice now. Every one of us has a story. Either we have come to faith dramatically through our sin, darkness, and Jesus brought his light to us, and we have had a rapid, intense turnaround of repentance to come to him, or we have been raised in a Christian home and now walk closely with Jesus. It's one of those two stories, and either story is correct. One isn't better than the other one. They're both correct, but you need to have a story. Now, in this secularized society where people are agnostic in increasing numbers, they're coming up with all kinds of questions about the faith. First of all, you need to know in apologetics there are answers to those questions. You may not have them yet, but as you're in the world, you are first of all called by God to share your faith, to tell what happened to you, how you came to a deep and abiding understanding of who Jesus is. And you share that faith. You're not responsible for the results. You're in sales. God's in management. But you are called to share that story. And here's the truth. You can debate different apologetic factors that are surrounding us, but what people cannot debate, dear friends, is your story. Your story for God's glory especially as he's brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, especially as he's used your pain for his purposes. And when you share your story, no one can doubt that story. That is your story. It's unique to you, and you must share it. You're commanded to share it, and nobody can doubt it. Nobody can shoot holes in it because, again, it's your story. This guy getting pressed by these Pharisees said, Look, all I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. Don't let suffering be a tripping point to make you deny Jesus. And be willing to write out your testimony, share it with whomever needs it, because you need to be able to say, like this guy, look, I can't explain everything in the world, but here's what I know. Once I was blind, walking in darkness, now I can see truth and reality. I'm following Jesus. I'm willing to die for Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and I have given my heart to him. May that be your position today and forever. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the ninth chapter of John, which gives us 
great indications into who you are. You don't do things the way we would do things, especially with mud balls and asking a man to wash thereafter and giving him his sight. But Lord, whatever you do is perfect and we trust you in it. I pray that Moments of Hope Church would be filled with people whose story is so profound they're willing to share it in every possible venue, online, verbally, however they can share it, so that people can hear the truth of how you change lives. Lord, it might be dramatic. It might be through a long process of growing up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter how we've come to faith in you. It matters that we come to faith in you. If there's anyone watching right now who's never given their lives to you, may they receive the question, the most important question you ask in these verses, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Just a mere man? Just a prophet? Or might you come to the reality like this man, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh, and you would call him capital L Lord? I pray that's what would happen now, and you would worship Jesus. I can promise you he'll be with you always. When you feel lonely and rejected, he'll pursue you with his grace, and you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus loves you powerfully, significantly, and you can trust him in everything. Thank you, Lord. If anyone is now receiving you as Lord and is finally yielding that you're not just a man, not just a prophet, you are God in human flesh, I pray they'd let us know so we can begin the process of discipleship to walk with them in faithfully following you for the rest of their lives. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and honor you. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in an insightful conversation about this morning's Davidism. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, we all been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals, and, and we just thank you moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the, the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there, and as the restaurants open back up, all the meals will shift to the Dream Center with the kitchen you helped us do. So we're so grateful for you guys. God bless you. God bless Moments of Hope, and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston, and with me is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jen. Well, you have recently experienced a significant grief in your life, and with this in mind, today's devotion is titled, Grief is Spelled L-O-S-S. Well, what happened to me was a couple of weeks ago, my older brother, Howard, five years my senior, contracted COVID, and um, he was a little overweight and had a diabetes condition, so he was someone with a compromised immunological system. Um, Within a week, he was gone. Mm. Uh, He caught it and went into the hospital, was placed on a ventilator, and and was gone. Mm. And I think the shock and the sudden abruptness of losing this wonderful, close, godly, dear brother who was a pastor and a friend to me uh, was just overcoming, and I had to get away for a couple of weeks just to grieve Mm -hmm. uh, because I'd gone through great loss. And that's why this Davidism today is entitled Grief is Spelled L-O-S-S because that's what causes grief. It's Mm -hmm. loss, and the greater the loss, the greater the grief. For example, if you lose your car keys, it causes anxiety and Mm -hmm. causes some grief, you know, hectically looking around for the car keys. You need them, uh, but it's not the same as when you lose a loved one, for example. And when I lost my brother Howard, the grief was extraordinary, so much more than like losing car keys, because the greater the loss, the greater the grief. Mm -hmm. And because you love your loved one so deeply when they go to be with the Lord, your loss is and your grief is great as well. So I just want to talk to people a little bit today about grief Mm -hmm. and how it is connected to losing something. And I think the message I want to give people is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says basically that everybody grieves when they lose a loved one, lose something important in their lives. Everybody does. But the difference between the way that believers in Jesus grieve and those who don't believe in Jesus grieve is believers grieve with hope. Mm -hmm. And I've walked through grief with unbelievers and their hopelessness and despair is telling. But I've walked through grief with believers and especially myself recently, and the difference is we grieve with hope. What's that hope? The hope is that we will see them again, that my brother Howard, Howard Kenneth Chadwick II, has never been more alive than he is right now, Mm. that like Jesus said to Martha about Lazarus, your brother lives. He Mm. is not dead. I cling to that John 11 verse, my brother Howard is not dead. He is alive, and I believe with everything in me that when I die, I'll go be with him and all of my other loved ones. I will see him Mm. again. So I grieve with hope, and that's what I want to say to everybody today. Grief is loss. It's spelled L-O-S-S, but believe in Jesus, trust Mm. in the Lord, and when you do, even though the loss may be great, you'll grieve with hope, knowing he'll restore that hope again, mostly in seeing your loved one again in heaven. This is so beautiful, and I'm reminded of a CD that you had just recently told the congregation about. Will you want to speak to that for just for a moment? Well, my brother Howard was greatly gifted musically, had a beautiful, deep, resonant baritone voice, and he put out a CD, and his wife Ramona sent 400 copies of the CD to the church, Thy Pastor, Moments of Hope Church, to make it available to our people because many of our people had heard Howard sing and might like to have a remembrance of him. And I'd never seen it before, but as I held up the CD this past Sunday to everybody, I said, here it is. If you'd like it, go grab one free of charge. And it's entitled, Finally Home. Hmm. Finally Home. I don't know of anybody in the world who wanted to see Jesus more than my brother Howard. 
he has now seen Jesus. Amen. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much, David. And anyone, if you'd like to receive these daily Davidisms, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. They're free of charge from my heart to yours, arriving in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. to give your day a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for students in our city. 